All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside. We seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. May I have the envelope, please? And the Oscar for Best Picture is presented to... And the Oscar goes 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 to... And the Oscar goes... And the Oscar goes... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to is a phrase that we have heard 92 times and counting. The movie title that follows that phrase lives within a relatively small group of notoriety. These movies are the quote-unquote best of that particular year. They are part of a collective of films that need to be looked at differently because of their relevance in pop culture. However, are these movies actually the best of all time, even the best of that year? Are these the quintessential must-watch, hands-down, the most significant films to come out during the 100-plus year history of cinema? Most would say no, and we would echo that. This doesn't answer the question as to why films were chosen. Only the Academy will ever know. However, we've challenged ourselves to dive into all the Best Picture winners and explore how they compare to one another. How we would rate them and how critics rated them in the past, these movies will be seen in progression starting from 1927 up until present day. So welcome to Worthy, the podcast breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. This week, we are talking about the Best Picture winner and First Academy Awards ceremony, which covered films that met the Academy's requirements from the summer of 1927 to the summer of 1928. I'm Ben. And I'm John. So Worthy is the exploration of each Best Picture winner, as well as the progression of the Academy over time. I myself have been able to watch and critique each winner prior to the creation of this podcast. And I've only watched a handful of the films throughout the years. So a question I want to pose to John is, is Wings worthy of the Best Picture Academy Award of 1927-28? So welcome to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. So before we get into the first episode of Worthy, we kind of want just to talk about ourselves for a bit, uh, not to be you know egotistical or anything or narcissistic. It's just more just to say like who we are as cinephiles and where we are in our own careers, and our own personal lives, and why we feel like and why we wanted to do this project. Uh, so John, why don't you give a little bit of background about yourself uh, just to give the audience a little taste. So Ben and I are both in our mid-20s. We both went to school together in upstate New York. We both studied in film and television while we were at school, and we both kind of dug our heels deep into the history of film. But even after we finished, um, we got a strong degree and a strong understanding of uh, the basic kind of technical elements as well as kind of getting our hands dirty. We still want to spend a lot of time and just really go back and watch as many films as possible. And we thought this was the best way to really dive deep into Hollywood and American films by starting at the very beginning of the Academy and kind of working our way and seeing the transition of history. Yeah. And during our time at school, uh, with me and John, you know, we really bonded over the Oscars and watching them together like every year at school. We also bonded over films like Clerks and Star Wars. I can remember walking to John's dorm room and seeing his whole Kevin Smith collection and my jaw dropping me like there's another guy out there that likes Kevin Smith as just much just as much as me. Like I was really excited about that. So me and John have always been on the same, I guess, uh, wavelength of our movie tastes and what we really like and what we enjoy, which really helps for us with discussing these movies. And this just overall interest of the Academy Awards starting from the beginning up until present day. And uh, so that's why like, we wanted to do this project to watch every single film uh, that did win Best Picture, because it, it just felt to us that like it was a continuation 
of our uh, of our film school of our, all the teachings that we did have but just to advance a little bit more because i guess the best way to learn is just to watch it and experience it yourself right yeah exactly we we kind of felt that it was uh, a necessary necessary uh, kind of step to just kind of watch as much classic film to learn from these classic films and really just see how they've progressed over time as it gives us so much information about how things are today and just how we've grown basically uh, not as a only as a culture but also as a uh, technical medium as well as uh, the actual art form Um, so the way we'll be kind of jumping in and looking at the films is we're obviously going to dive deep into the history of the academy and kind of learn more about uh, the the members behind it how they uh, um, kind of decided on the particular winners as well as the history um, of the uh, different winners and the uh, kind of tracking the history of specific winners as you go through history and then tracking the the best winners and kind of somewhat comparing them as we go along as well as kind of giving a a defining grade in our opinion of what we think it's if it's worthy or not but also just kind of giving it defining grade on the film overall and what we thought of it yeah and it's not to say that to take this grade as like the word of god because we are quote-unquote experts in our own way of where we are in our own lives uh we've done professional stuff i've been very fortunate where i work at a big television network to win an emmy and be a part of that kind of those kinds of productions and john has been working on a lot of new media fronts and doing his own screenwriting which is where our own professional uh experiences do come from for this sort of subject but we're not like we we don't call ourselves film critics we are cinephiles but even putting that kind of name to it is also very odd uh for us to say but we really do enjoy movies and i for me personally i hate to label things uh just because you are your own person you're able to do and see and evaluate things through your own eyes and with your own thoughts and your brain is it's just all unique to yourself. And so that experience of its own is what's going to help me and John uh, decipher and evaluate these films because there really is a lot to break down. Uh, so that's who we are. John, is there anything else uh, we should gloat about ourselves before uh, letting the first episode of worthy go on? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely worth noting that we aren't professionals. You know, this is an engaging conversation that we would like to open up hopefully uh, more and more as we get some more listeners here and we get to hear more opinions and hear whether people think a certain film was worthy and we said it was maybe not or we said it was uh, worthy, in fact. So we really want to open up into like a bigger dialogue and grow here at at Worthy and just kind of dive deeper into the history as we all learn together and, um, yeah, become better cinephiles. So before we jump into the Wings conversation, I'd like to take a moment and go down the lineage and the creation of the Academy. Definitely. Um, So this is directly following the Academy's website, going through a a couple years of their initial um, inception, as well as the following couple of years. During a dinner at his home, MGM studio chief Louis B. Mayer and his guests talked about creating an organization that would help benefit the film industry. A week later, 36 invitees from all of the creative branches of the film industry dined at Los Angeles Ambassador Hotel to hear a proposal to found the International Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Articles of incorporation were soon presented and officers were elected with Douglas Fairbanks as president. 
Between that evening and when the official articles of incorporation for the organization were filed on May 4, 1927, the International was dropped from the name, becoming the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, or what we'll be calling AMPAS. 1928, Awards of Merit. One of the first Academy committees was the Awards of Merit. The seven-person committee suggested to the board that awards be presented in 12 categories. The Academy published its first book in 1928, a report on incandescent illumination, based on a series of academic-sponsored seminars attended by 150 cinematographers. 1929, the first Academy Awards. The first ceremony accounted for all films made from the summer of 1927 to the summer of 1928. The voting for the Academy Award for Best Picture was in the hands of AMPAS, founders Douglas Fairbanks, Sid Groman, Louis B. Mayer, Mary Pickford, Joseph Schneck. Now, Ben, before we move on, I want to ask if you see those five names in front of you, is there something that uh, stands out between all of those? Yeah, there is. Uh, uh, Mary Pickford uh, being one of the first, being the only female, not the first, the only female of the group. Uh, to be part, literally the only female. Yeah, literally the only female. Five, right. Um, and you know there are obviously there are two other big names: Sid Grauman and Louis B. Mayer. Mayer being the founder of MGM and Grauman, uh, Chinese Grauman's Theater. Grauman's Chinese Theater. I think that's the actual name. Of it. Yeah. But yeah, but the you know these were yeah the you know titans I guess you could say of the industry. Definitely, and I I wanted to stop for a second and talk about Mary Pickford simply because not only is she a name that we don't really hear very often, especially out of these five names. Um, she's just a woman that kind of stands out against a full background of an industry really dominated by men. Um, so in 19... Yeah, she's a badass. She's truly a badass. In 1916, Pickford and Cecil B. DeMille helped found the Hollywood Studio Club, uh, which was a dormitory for young women uh, involved in the motion picture industry, um, aimed to basically avoid any... Uh, abuse for young women, as well as like fair and stable housing for women in the industry. Um, she continued to push for higher pay and full authority over her productions and the films she starred in. And she was also the first leading lady to score a million dollar deal in the 20s. Uh, in 1919, Pickford, along with W.D. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks, formed an independent film production company, United Artists, that you'll see create Tons of tons of popular films and even have theaters still across the entire U.S. today. So yeah, I just United to, Artists is still going. Exactly. Yeah, I just wanted to give a little shout out to Mary Pickford just because I think she needed a little spotlight, especially amongst all those all those men in, in the entire uh, academy. Yeah, especially for helping to create a system, which I unfortunately having to say, like, we definitely need more of today. Uh, in today's Hollywood industry. Um, so it, it's really great that there was a, a semblance of that early on, but it was definitely lost, you know, along the way. Yeah, I think it just been kind of a spotlight on the industry to, to really show her and really show her off, but also kind of shows that it's hasn't changed as much as we would like to think. You know, women still um, are always considered kind of like second in the entertainment industry for some reason, but... I think it's just up to the men in the entertainment industry to really step up and kind of speak for the women there and have more women's voices just in general across the board. So shout out to Mary Pickford. All right, Ben, I want you and the audience to close their eyes because we're going into the Academy Awards. 
Uh, but before, just don't close your eyes if you're driving. Uh, yeah, definitely don't do that. Don't crash. Yeah. Please don't Fo- crash. Focus on the road. Yeah, please, please don't crash. <laughs> All right, I'm closing my eyes. It's May 26th, 1929. The average cost of a movie ticket is 35 cents with the option for additional 5 cent popcorn. But tonight is a different night out. Instead of a seeing a film, you're getting dressed up to honor motion pictures in the blossoming industry. You walk into the pale structure of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel and are greeted with 300 other guests in fine attire. The Academy members make up the majority of the crowd, but there's a $5 charge for guests, or what would be $75 in 2020. As you sit down to your pre-assigned tables, you hear murmurs from the surrounding attendees complaining about the three-month wait for the award shows as winners were announced all the way back in February. The lights dim as Douglas Fairbanks walks to the small podium as the first Academy Awards begin. So after immediately like hearing all that and what a great description it was, especially keeping my eyes closed, uh, you know, very dreamy voice you have right yeah, there. You were there. You were right there. <laughs> yeah, I I really did feel like I was there, and it's just amazing because you know you know the first thing that stands out to me is that they knew the winners. I know like today with the Academy, like we can tell like who's going to win some categories, but the fact that they knew every single winner going into like this first Academy Awards makes it seem like you know why, why are we even here? But it is a celebration of the industry. Um, and I think that's, I think it gets lost sometimes, uh, especially today, like what the Academy is supposed to represent. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely to, to push forward those artists and we'll get further into the representation of what the Academy and the original seven members kind of wanted this Academy to represent and what they wanted to push. But I think at the time being, it was, uh, almost a status symbol to be there, to be in the show, even though you're waiting, what, months and months and months to even to get down and give that award to the, to the entire group and audience. It's still something that I think those people in the audience are very proud to be there. You know, it's a select group that are honored to be represented in the start of this industry, but it's really hard to know, you know, it's like the beginning of this industry. It's hard to see what it was like back then. You know, we're talking about like the 20 years that this industry was already a thing, you know, motion pictures only being since the late 1800s. It's just interesting because, you know, you're you're part of this, like, I don't want to say prestigious, but it's definitely, like, a big thing to be there. And it's especially for a film, you know, like Wings, uh, which we'll get into, it was released in 1927. And you're, it's being awarded in 1929. So, like, there's just this huge gap of of time in between the when the movie came out and the awards. And it's, like, I, I can only imagine, like, how like what it would have been like to have been there to like first see wings and to have that like huge impact to last almost a whole year and a half. Like there are rarely any movies today that are like that, that stay for a whole year in people's minds and to still say like, wow, that was the best picture. Yeah. I think that it has to do like the high demand of just entertainment these days and that the demand of, of content in general, you know, back then it was like four films, five films that really dominated the year. So it was so easy to just like kind of pick one that really stood out and really like lobby behind that. It's also much easier for everyone just to, yeah, again, make their own content. There are just so many different forms of it, but just going back to like when wings came out, you know, we'll get into it more. It it was just a, it was an experience. It was an experience to be in the theater. You know, they, they did a lot to really put a production on for it. So, um, so yeah, so just hearing that description of like the ceremony and, just knowing who won and it, it's just so strange compared to like what we're dealing or like what, what we deal with today with the academy yeah yeah like we're used to something completely different but it's it's pretty cool like i, I kind of wish it, you did know who won and then the ceremony is just like well we're just going to praise the hell out of these mm-hmm. movies we're praising the industry 
And uh, again, like I said before, I just don't think that really gets recognized enough or even at all today. Would you rather have it that the like the winners are announced before the show even happens? Uh, selfishly, no, because I love to fill out my own Oscar ballots yeah, yeah, every year, and I, and I want to be right. Of course, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you uh, have done an incredible job always being like almost exactly right every year, and I get so frustrated by that. <laughs> but uh but yeah, but you know, it's like a it 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 is almost like a sporting event, you know, at times. But also, yeah, it would be cool to kind of be like to know like who won, and then there's so much like drama that gets taken out of it. But that opens up so many more opportunities to just talk about the films in general. Yeah, and uh, I think, and I just think that's something that that gets lost. Definitely, I think at this point of time, you know, it's not obviously it's not being filmed, it's not on TV. It's a very different form of the Academy Awards, and it's not really about the glitz and glamour it's not about seeing your favorite you know celebrity in a dress or a really nice suit it's about the films and what they're there to represent and what they think is worthy of being under that academy label it's like so different than what we think of the academy awards today definitely there are 12 categories for the academy's first merit awards engineering effects goes to roy pomeroy for wings art direction william cameron menzies for the dove Cinematography, Charles Rosher and Carl Struess, Sunrise. Writing titles, and now these are the caption titles for silent films. Joseph Farnham, for no specific film. Now you'll notice that certain awards can be given out for not only specific films, whether the artist worked on that film or not, it could be for their collective work over the past year or two, especially when we're talking about the first Academy Awards, which took place... Um, from 27 to 28. Yeah, a very like again another odd thing about these this early this first Academy Awards ceremony where it was again it was more about the artist rather rather than the actual product. Yes, exactly. You know? Yep. Writing directly for the screen. Now this is basically what we would assume as original screenplay, which was to winner to Ben Hecht for Underworld. Writing for based on a material for another medium, what we would now call adapted writing. Benjamin Glazer for Seventh Heaven. Direction for Comedy Picture. Lewis Milestone for Two Arabian Nights. And then there is a direction for Drama Picture, which is Frank Borzad for Seventh Heaven. For Best Actress, Janet Gaynor. She's the first Best Actress winner as she was honored for the combination of three film roles, Seventh Heaven, Street Angel, and Sunrise. Now, how do you feel about the summary of combining multiple films to represent an artist or an actress or any artist on a film production? I I like it. Um, I like it because, again, like coming back a little bit to the present day, there's a lot of times where an actor or an actress will come out with one film and they are you know they're they're winning more for like what they did that year you know we everyone talks about the McConaissance uh with Matthew McConaughey how it wasn't just Dallas Buyers Club it was uh it it was also for True Detective that like everyone was wow he was so good and like that makes it seem so much better his role so just the fact that like someone's winning for three movies I I think that's kind of cool um would I want it now to be like you know, Leonardo DiCaprio gets nominated for three films or two films. He comes out for that year. 
maybe not. But I think again, like this is still like really interesting, and it, and it does still happen today where we're sometimes praising the actor for their body of work or maybe multiple things that come out that year just because either their range or just they're really good. Yeah, it's interesting that this kind of structure of organizing these awards have kind of faded away. Yet at the same time, actors still kind of get this leverage. Like they still have multiple performances in a year and sometimes it's almost counted in their their nominee, their nominee or their award for winning. So it's like kind of like a weird silent rule that still kind of exists, but it's not official because when they get their Academy Award, it's for a certain film. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually interesting because um, one of the other categories for cinematography, uh, so Sunrise won for uh, Charles Rocher and Carl Strauss were the cinematographers for that, but they were competing against just one other guy, George Barnes, and it was three separate nominations. So uh, George Barnes wasn't nominated necessarily just he was wasn't just one nomination for three films it was three separate nominations for three separate films and he still lost still which lost. sucks you know for him <laughs> but uh it, again like it's just really interesting because how many times would we ever see a cinematographer even just getting multiple nominations in the same year it, I, I don't remember that ever happening especially recently roger deacons roger deacons roger deacons uh, it's amazing how like Deacons uh, is now a two-time winner after just like forty years of never getting anything. <laughs> just so many nominations and never winning. Yeah, but that that's a whole other discussion for a way later episode <laughs> <laughs> for this. Uh, focusing on right now, yeah, and and also just like the writing uh, categories are really interesting too because because uh, we have three writing categories. Um, basically, the two ones that we still see today for the screenplays, but then also for the title cards and the movies. I mean. When for silent films, like the title card is something creative. It's not just like, uh, I guess the typical thing that we always see of just like the white text on the black background. Like there is, they go like really in depth. Some of these movies, like Wings, has you know, it's always backdropped against like a set of clouds, like always motion behind it. I think we'll definitely talk about the differences between Wings and Sunrise when it comes to title cards because they do title cards in such drastically different ways and both so original and so unique and like powerful for each film. And it's like crazy that that is considered like part of the art form at the time. It's something that we like never consider, but it was like a, such a helpful part of the medium to understand the context of the film, understand dialogue. It just was so helpful to really just digest an entire film without titles. Like Wings might not make much sense, honestly. Yeah. I think Sunrise is a film we'll talk about more. Um, it really just helps glue films together at this time. Let's take a second for direction. Uh, and I mentioned there's both comedy oh, yeah, picture yeah, yeah, and drama picture. So it's something what is that this, we the, definitely the Golden Globes. <laughs> yeah, what is this? The Golden Globes? Come on. <laughs> it's something that we don't yeah, no, see yeah, in yeah. the Oscars anymore. No. But it's interesting how it is split up because it's just that uh, the the typical just like uh, like comedy and drama, like those are the only two genres of a film or even a stage play or in theater. Mm. So it's just interesting how it's broken up and they recognize, well, there are comedy movies and there are drama movies and they're two totally different art forms. And again, like going back to today where you would never see that it's rare that a comedy director is nominated, especially like today. Yeah, definitely. I, part of me makes perfect sense why they're separated, especially nowadays where comedy films get so undershadowed. Uh, or overshadowed in the entire industry and especially in the academy awards um but at the same time it feels a little 
uh, to, to separate these two categories into like what is worthy in each section. But if I had to pick one or the other, I, I would rather prefer this having two separate awards for directing. You would? I would, yes. Because I think there's two, there's such totally different directing styles that I think it's, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to like acknowledge more comedy films just in general in the Academy. But I think we'll get a better picture of that as we slowly progress through the Academy Awards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, I, I would disagree, but just because not every film, especially today is not a comedy or not a drama. It's so different. Like how, you know, how do you factor in like uh, big action movies? Like that's not really a comedy or a drama. No, it's, it's an action movie. An action so film. yeah, probably would go into the drama just cause it's an action film. That's dramatic in itself. Yeah, that's true. That I mean, it probably wouldn't work very well nowadays just because it's films over the entire 100-year history plus have kind of melded and merged genres. So it's like so many films are like merging and crossing over drama dramas. Like we use the term dramedy constantly. So like how would you nominate directing for a dramedy? So it makes sense why it kind of fades away. All right, best actor goes to ML Jannings. In the way of all flesh and the last command. And the outstanding picture for production goes to Paramount Famous Lasky for Wings. Unique and artistic picture goes to Fox for Sunrise. So we're getting two different awards here, Ben. What do you think of the separation between outstanding picture and the unique and artistic picture? Yeah, this is probably the the biggest thing about the first Academy Awards and the, the f- big thing about this episode is we have two best picture winners technically. Yeah. Um, neither of them say best and, picture. So which, which is best picture? Well, if we're going by what the Academy has adopted following this ceremony, um, they technically call the outstanding picture win for wings as the first best picture winner. Um, so unique and artistic picture category, um, you're not getting totally into it right now, but that was just cut after the ceremony. So it, it's so it's so interesting that we have two best picture winners because it it's, has never been done after that. It will never ever happen again. It, so it, for me, for if we're talking about technicality, Wings is the best picture winner of 1927. Interesting. What, what do you think? Well, I'm always going to go by the Academy's rule because that's what they want to define their history as. So I'll, I'll classify Wings as the best picture, but there's a reason why Sunrise is in there. And I think when we begin to compare the two, we'll understand the difference between the unique and artistic picture for Sunrise and an outstanding picture. What is an outstanding picture compared to the unique and artistic picture? Uh, before we get into right. that. Um, I, I just want to add like one more, just one more thing to that. Um, we, we do have to call Sunrise a best picture winner, though, because... It was, for all intents and purposes, still technically a Best Picture winner. It won for unique and artistic picture, so that does count. It just doesn't count to the idea that it is a Best Picture winner that we know of today. Definitely, when this award show uh, I don't happened, know. you know, it's not like they said one is better than the other. You know, these are both high merits of awards for these films. You know, yeah, the like the only thing that I can think of and equate it to is in football when a player wins. MVP versus when they went offensive player of the year. So it's like, you know, the MVP is wings and the offensive player of the year is sunrise. That's the only thing I can equate mm. it to because it is just so different uh, to, to like what, to what we know of today. It, it, 
there, there's no like runner up. There's no just like, well, this is the best picture and this is. I mean, you sort of get that with the Golden Globes again with the drama and comedy, but it, it, it's a toss up, you know, that we're kind of talking about this. It's just so weird. And that's why I love talking about it. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. We'll definitely jump into that more. Uh, before we continue on to Wings, which is the main topic of discussion today, I want to talk a little bit about the special awards. Up until the 1950s Academy Award ceremony, the Academy Honorary Awards were called Special Awards. Charles Chaplin was the first to receive the Special Award for his writing, directing, acting, and producing of the circus. Although he was originally a Best Actor, Best Writer, and Best Comedy Director nominee, Chaplin was removed or nullified from those competitive categories so that he could receive the Honorary Award. Who would be that person today, Ben? Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that because uh, does that person now have to, like, if we were to equate that to today, does that person then have to star, act, and direct in the same movie? Because there have been multiple winners uh, across the Academy's history that has won Best Picture, they directed and starred in it. Um, but for something like that, like an honorary award, the people that come to my mind are Scorsese, like, uh, Spielberg, and as an actor, Meryl, Meryl Streep, like, the, like to me like those are just like people that are like okay well obviously they're the best at their craft so we're just going to give them the honorary award instead of uh you know it, instead of giving them the academy award so it's like for scorsese it's like well do we have to keep nominating him like he's the best why can't we just keep giving him honorary awards definitely. for every movie that he makes definitely um so, it, it, so it's just like a it's it's almost like funny that the chaplain was like well you're too good for right now and like we don't want to just take everything away from everyone else because if you were nominated you would obviously win yeah definitely i think we'll get like a better understanding of what the honorary award is over time i think they just basically took charlie chaplin out of the entire running i i've read a little bit of history of charlie chaplin that some people in the industry were not just a fan of him and his kind of antics as, as a guy in the industry um so that could have been the reason why they removed him but they still gave him this special award which has like gone on to be such a significant award uh, now labeled as the honorary award for the Academy Awards. So I think we'll get like a better understanding because I don't think we really see someone like Charlie Chaplin getting nominated for that honorary award. He was like a, a one man circus, truly. Yeah. No pun yeah, intended. Or I, pun intended. Yeah. If we're thinking of like someone who directed and acted in their own movies, like I think Eastwood's the biggest, you know, most recognizable name that kind of fits that mold. But there really aren't that many people who direct and act in the same movies anymore. Um, it, it is very rare, especially then to then be honored for both. Um, exactly. is yeah. another rare feat. Definitely. Before we move off of the awards and the Academy show in general, uh, I want to acknowledge just a couple of snubs. Um, now yeah. in 1920, they're always snubs. Uh, of course, always snubs. And we'll go through the snubs throughout all the years of the Academy awards. Um, in 1929, there was a significant change in the industry with the jazz singer as it introduced a talkie into the picture, uh, would now have direct dialogue and singing, uh, that was directly recorded and then presented in front of theaters. So some people were asking maybe in 1929, the jazz singers there, like that should be at least nominated. You're not seeing an out outstanding picture. You're not seeing a unique and artist picture. Um, why do you think that wasn't uh, added in the Academy Awards? Well, I, I because it was just so new. 
And even though the industry was so young at the time, it was just like, whoa, we can have sound, we can have dialogue. Like that's part of the experience because part of it, it does take away a little bit, uh, especially with Wings, you know, going a little bit into it. There was like a whole roadshow with it, um, with orchestration, sound effects that they would, you know, physically do in the space of the theater. Uh, Whereas like with recorded sound, it's just part of the real and you almost take away some of that like, added effects some of those live almost practical effects mm-hmm. and uh but the jazz singer was nominated for um for adapted writing writing based on material from another medium uh but it did not win um so it's not like it was completely forgotten about it just wasn't uh part of the best picture uh mm-hmm. discussion yeah it's kind of a cheat code in a way it's also weird to throw in a talking with all these other nominees that aren't, you know, it's kind of hard to compare like a silent film to a talkie and then kind of relate them one to one um, because it's just kind of, it becomes a different medium at that point and starts to evolve and change. And you can introduce a lot more into a film. Um, I've also, I've actually never seen the jazz singer. I don't know about you, but I've also heard it's not that great of a film. As you know, we're, we're coming to this podcast, maybe introducing ourselves as cinephiles, but we're not the most, uh, I guess historical cinephiles, more like an up to date to well, present day. You know, it's a it's a film journey, uh, almost a film school like experience to go through every Academy oh, Award. I, I, absolutely, and you know, and kind of referencing back, like I've seen a bulk of these movies. Like this is really my second time going through this, like you know these these movies, and I, and I've learned so much just from like watching each of these movies and understanding it and. There are some things I think I learned from just watching these movies that I did not learn in our film school. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, you you just get such a better sense and idea of like uh, of what I guess you would call Oscar bait, but just like what is uh, to reference the title that's worthy of of these Academy Awards. Exactly, the best film school is films, right? Yeah. All right. There's one more snub that I want to acknowledge, uh, which is the general. 1926 starring Buster Keaton. So Buster Keaton's honestly a, a significant actor, performer, director from the silent era for his comedic takes and his comedic films. Uh, do you think there's a reason why he was left off or it's just not the cup of tea for the audience? People just look at Charlie Chaplin as the kind of the it guy for comedy at the time. Well, the, the movie came out in 1926, right? Yeah. So it didn't meet the Academy's requirements like that would be my best answer, uh, which sucks because, again, like the the first ceremony and, and the following few, like covers such a wide range of, of time. Um, so the fact there are some movies before the summer of 27 that just don't get recognized and Buster Keaton gets kind of roped in there. You know, it's unfortunate, but it just it's I, we're going with technicalities. It just wasn't part of the requirements. Definitely. Yeah. It, it didn't meet it. And I wonder specifically why they cut it off at 27 uh whether it was the year that they kind of had the inception of the academy and said you know we started it now we should start the film uh you know collections from this point on um why not go back to the start of all film you know go go back to the start of the first motion picture essentially it's interesting yeah they could have backtracked and we'd be looking back on that history now differently but in a way like it's just pre Ampass and now post Ampass, post creation of Ampass, that um, was just the reason why. And uh, again, like it's unfortunate, but them's the rules, you know, that's kind of <laughs> what it is. <laughs> uh, 
yeah so I, I, it's just like another interesting fact and uh so sad that it was snubbed buster keaton's a legend yeah yeah no i mean all all these people are legends when within the world of the industry I and mean, we're not talking about personally but like within the world of the industry they're just legends definitely um so but yeah so let's actually get into the discussion of wings and uh i think the best place to start it off is the actual story itself Uh, so first, kind of a quick log line of it. Uh, so it's about two young men, one rich, one middle class, who are in love with the same woman, and they become fighter pilots in World War One. So that's just like the basic, you know, log line of it. But to get into more of it, so Wings is about Jack Powell and David Armstrong. They're rivals in the same small American town, and they're both vying for the attention of the pretty Sylvia Lewis. Jack fails to realize that the girl next door, Mary Preston, is desperately in love with him. Jack and David both enlist to become combat pilots in the air service during World War I. As they prepare to leave for training camp, Jack mistakenly believes Sylvia prefers him. She actually prefers David and lets him know about her feelings, but is too kind-hearted to turn down Jack's affection. So Jack and David train together where they go from being enemies to best friends. There's actually a really uh, important boxing sequence between them as they kind of uh, kick the crap out of each other and then kind of be like, oh, well, we're buddies now. Uh, So upon graduating from... uh, the Air Force, they are shipped off to France to fight the Germans. Um, and Mary, uh, Jack's neighbor, she also joins the war effort as a driver. Uh, and Mary runs into Jack while on leave in Paris, and she finds him to be in this drunken state where he just doesn't recognize her. Um, she puts him to bed, but two military police come in the room uh, as she's changing, and uh, she's forced to resign and return back to the United States. And so from there, the climax of the story is this Battle of St. Malie. Uh, I hope that's how it's pronounced, uh, where David is initially shot down and they think he's dead. Um, but he does survive uh, the crash landing and he steals a German biplane and he heads right back for the Allied lines. Um, but by a tragic stroke of bad luck, Jack, he sees this enemy aircraft and he's just like, I got to avenge my friend. And he begins attacking it and he brings down the plane, not knowing David was in it. Um, so Jack goes down to kind of check on the wreck and kind of claim like his uh, reward of bringing it down. Um, and when the owner of the land where the aircraft crashed, uh, she tells Jack to come to see the man who's dying and it's David. Um, so he comes to Jack's dying side and he agrees and becomes uh, distraught when he realizes that he was the one that had caused this. And David consoles him uh, saying it's okay. And before he dies, he forgives his comrade. So at the end of the war, Jack comes home to a huge hero's welcome. There's a parade, flowers, and everything. Um, but Jack, the first thing he does after this parade is he visits David's grieving parents um, to return his effects. And the effect is this uh, small little teddy bear uh, that David carried around the whole time that his mother gave him. So Jack returns that. Um, and so he begs for forgiveness for causing David's death. And um, David's mother, Mrs. Armstrong, says that it's not Jack who is responsible for his son's death, uh, but the war. Um, which becomes kind of this like huge significance and kind of the first real time in a movie that's saying like, yeah, war sucks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but at the end, Jack and Mary are reunited and he realizes he loves her and kisses her after he sees a shooting star. 
and the shooting star becomes this kind of motif throughout because it's something that he paints on his first car it's something that he paints it on the side of his plane and he was called the shooting star because of how great of a pilot uh he was in the air force so yeah that's just a brief little synopsis of uh wings but definitely go see it if you haven't seen it yet you should go see it definitely i think it holds up yeah it it, it's a it's a really cool experience and it's uh it's the first uh you know huge war film not not even just to win uh, the academy award just one of the big first war films in general the film was directed by william wellman written by john monk sanders uh and hope loring lewis d Lighton, and the titles were done by julian johnson it was produced by uh, Lucian Hubbard and BP Schulberg. The score, which is an incredible score, we'll get into that, was done by J.S. Uh, Zemechnik. Uh, the cinematography was Harry Perry, and the film editing was done by E. Lloyd Sheldon. And I, I wanted to talk about it, it was just like kind of interesting because cinematography, the credit was photographed by, and for film editing, it was just editor in chief. So it's just like funny to see those names a little bit different than what we would normally see. Definitely different than what we're used to. Yeah, no, completely different. Um, and the cast, so Jack Powell was played by Charles Rogers. Uh, David Armstrong was played by Richard Arlen. And Mary Preston was played by Clara Bow. And Clara Bow was kind of the... Uh, it star. The big star. Yeah, she was the big star of Hollywood. And she actually, in a sense, lobbied to have her role bigger than what it actually is in the movie. And yeah, Mary does play a pretty significant role, but the movie is more about the film and the spectacle of the war rather than the the love triangle or love square so and then there was one uh person that had like a a brief cameo slash scene appearance and that was gary cooper and this was before uh he became famous for movies like high noon for whom the bell tolls and mr d goes to town and uh this scene it kind of forms a lot of the tension within the film uh because jack and david meet him in, in this tent and then he's like well i'm gonna go fly a, a plane right now and then the next minute he's dead and then you know the other uh the higher-ups within the air force you know came to get his stuff and you know jack and david are seeing this and realizing like like how they could just die any second <laughs> so uh so gary cooper had you know before he becomes the, the big film star that he became has a small role within wings i i do agree with you i think it sets a tone for the rest of the film up until that oh, yeah. point it's it's like happy-go-lucky right like they're almost excited to go to war right oh yeah and it it almost seems like maybe this is a bit propaganda. Like I, I felt that it was very propaganda ish at first with the film because it's like, Oh, you gotta be American. And then, uh, this character, Herman Schwimpf, you know, he has a tattoo of the American flag and he's like flexing his muscles to make it wave. And he's showing how American he is. But then all of a sudden, yeah, this person they just met just dies. And you just see Jack and David kind of be like, Oh shit, we're in war. And, uh, it almost, uh, they become hardened a little bit by it. Um, they still keep some of that happy-go-luckiness throughout the film. Definitely. Uh, and I and I think that's just a natural thing in, in some silent films. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it is a very formative moment for just to kind of be like, well, this is a war film. This isn't just a, you know, a happy, you know, smiley, you know, fun, you know, movie just to watch. Yeah, I think it cements the tone, suggesting like, People can die. Like your main characters can die. This, and I think it's meant to be more knowing that uh, Gary Cooper goes on to to be like such a legendary actor that he is. It, it just cements that you know life is is fragile, especially yeah. when it comes to war, and it's not just about 
you know, hanging out with your bros up until that point. That's really what the film is. Just uh, them fighting and then becoming closer together until they're truly best friends. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. So, um, yeah, so it's a it's a nice I wouldn't say it's a nice moment, but it's a it's a good moment for the story of the film. Exactly. Um, yeah. So let's get into some of the things that we liked um, about it. Um, so I figured let's start out with just scenes and uh, we'll kind of go back and forth. So uh, the one scene, and I think this is probably the most well-known scene, is the Paris nightclub uh, part of the film uh, where Definitely. Jack is uh, essentially just getting shit-faced. And, so drunk. Oh, so, so drunk that he sees bubbles. Yes. And I, I want to talk about what? the like the bubble like uh, this goes into like many parts of like my favorite things because the whole scene is great because to kind of set it up a little bit so jack is in this nightclub he's getting drunk with a lot of his army buddies the army is actually calling everyone back for this like one last big battle and mary is also in paris and she hears about the the shooting star pilot being there she knows realizes that's jack and then she sees him in this nightclub she gets dressed up tries again to notice her but he doesn't notice her and so this is like like back and forth kind of like you know sequence and, and scenes where just so much happens and it's backdrop with just the craziness of of Paris at night and um yeah so so the scene and uh then kind of connected to one of my favorite shots and probably the most well known shot of of wings is I'm gonna call it a zipline shot where it goes over a bunch of tables in the nightclub and you know. At one table, there's a couple kissing, and one table there's actually uh, a fe- it's actually a female couple. Wow, I didn't even notice that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it, it no has idea. that, and uh, it's also famous for uh, Jack and David. They say they kiss when David dies, but Jack kind of just kisses him on the cheek. So I wouldn't call that a kiss, but uh, oh wow, okay. yeah. So like Wings was like known for that. So so that scene. So and it's also pre code era these movies. So you know like they were just showing that everyone's getting shit faced and, and drinking and doing all these, like, um, I guess what wasn't at the time, socially acceptable things. Uh, so yeah, so it kind of tracking shot over the tables until finally it just lands right on Jack as he's filling up his, uh, champagne flute. And he's just like, so just like wide eyed and like, gla- like glassy. And, and it, it's just so funny, uh, just to watch, but it's just really well done and well crafted because it's not easy to to get that shot done. Like there's a lot of coordination that you need uh, to, to pull that off. Definitely. Yeah. There's so much going on in the scene and the backgrounds and everything, but I got to be honest, this is where the film kind of drops off for me and it becomes like my least favorite part of the entire movie. Honestly, really? While I found it fun and engaging, especially like the cinematography, as we were talking about, I just felt that the bubbles and how goofy it became felt so like beyond the sense of humor that we experienced so far in the film yeah i I understand they're celebrating and this is supposed to be their big celebration but the fact that he's so drunk and he's seeing bubbles like he's hallucinating (laughs) like it's so ridiculous and like insane it's just it was took me out of the film so much and then we get into like the conversation of mary as a character like she's so just pointless she literally is there to like find and engage in love and she's her literally only purpose in the film is just just like find a lover find someone to like fall in love with and like constantly chase after these two men yeah right before this scene we see her 
literally break the fourth wall. She stares directly into the camera. So to set the scene before she goes and finds out that Jack's there, she is a part of the the motor core. Is that what they call her? Uh, she, that sounds right. <laughs> she's a part of a group of men and women that were sent there not to fight in war, but essentially to be transports and to help uh, move equipment and move men. So she is there to uh, essentially find Jack and, and uh, convince him that she's in love with him. But there's a moment where she kind of like falls into like a, like a, little puddle of water and like she looks directly into the camera and kind of like you know turns her head and shrugs a little bit like mm, oh well like that just yeah. happened and i that that alone was so bizarre because it's the only time in the entire movie where we get like a fourth wall breaking it's very very bizarre and then she leads into the nightclub scene where she finds jack and then i have so many other like grievances with that scene in general too you go ahead Let, let's hear them so before like so she gets there right jack is really drunk but also david's really drunk and when she looked there yeah so when the scene first starts they're both there and they're drinking together david has a girl and he has this other girl that's there in the room uh in the entire nightclub scene and he's drinking with her and he's like happy having a fun time and he essentially walks away with her like at least alluding to that they're going to go have sex or they're going to go do whatever this couple is going to do. And she, Mary looks at David and she's like almost disappointed. She like sees him walk away and she's like, oh, darn, like I could have chosen him, but he walked away with another woman. Oh, well, like on to Jack. Like, again, it's just pointing to her character only being there to simply say, uh, I need a man. This man? Oh, no, he's taken. OK, this man then like I'm going to go with you. And then that's when she interacts with Jack and he's so unbelievably fucked up that he's seeing bubbles and it was like so distracting and i just was so annoyed by the entire scene and i, I can keep going even more because it gets even worse from mary's point perspective yeah. point of view and and how they represent women in this film in general yeah i think that i think that's another big thing is just like the treatment of women uh in in this film and it it again like yeah even though clara bow who plays mary is kind of the bigger star she is very simplified within this uh, film, but it, it's interesting that you, you saw that she was disappointed that she couldn't have David because I've only because and I've seen this movie twice now and I've only ever seen it as that she just wants Jack that she never is disappointed that she can't have David. So uh, so it's interesting that it's odd yeah that, that you that that's what you took from it and I think that's a very Im- important thing about silent films in general is that there there's so much more room for interpretation just because there's there's no sound there's no dialogue there's only title cards then there are very few title title cards and the title cards that are in uh in this scene are like these really funny ones and that's one of my favorite lines is uh so jack is kind of walking away with this one french woman and mary's trying to pull jack uh to her and so jack's kind of like trying to just figure out which one uh, he wants to go with and he shakes them both and bubbles come out of them (laughs) and uh he looks at Mary and he goes, she has bubbles, even in her eyes. She wins. <laughs> and I was like, again, like, and I'm not saying, you know, and I, I'm not saying that this scene and the sequence is like, oh, the best thing I've ever seen. I just thought it was like something very memorable from the movie just because it's so, it's so totally different and it doesn't necessarily progress this, the main story of the war and Jack and David, but it just like, it, it adds to the secondary storyline of, this like love triangle uh, or just this like love story um, mm-hmm. which is 
part of the drama of the of the movie. It's definitely a drama between the two men. Um, I definitely initially. Um, before we move off the scene, <laughs> I will talk about my favorite uh, line from the film because it ties directly into Clara Bow's character, Mary, yeah. and and her basically trying to seduce Jack. So she initially tries to to get his attention, but he's so drunk he's just seeing bubbles, yada yada yada. She then is like, oh, well, I need like a I need another plan. Like I need another way to grab him. So she goes into this washroom bathroom kind of thing inside of this Paris nightclub. And the washerman says, what, like, what's the matter? You lost your man. Tell me about it, Cherry. Mary goes, he's just a boy. He doesn't realize. The washwoman says, if you would catch the fly, do you set the vinegar? No, my Cherry, but the sugar. Yes. So put on one of the dancer's dresses. So she's essentially saying. You wouldn't catch a man if you were dressed as vinegar. So not only is she saying <laughs> you're not dressed hot enough to attract a man, you must uh, dress uh, a little more sexy or, you know, refer to it as sugar to really attract a man. Yeah. And then once she does that, then Jack is like, oh, uh, she's got bubbles in her <laughs> eyes. Oh, the bubbles, the bubble. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it, it's another time. It's, it, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it is bit. uncomfortable. And, you're definitely very like when you're watching you're like ah, ah kind of like cringing from Why? it but <laughs> i you know i for me when i like watch these films i i, I wouldn't say like i was in the mindset of a 1927 i was just like uh maybe something just to think about so speaking of mary and this kind of love triangle in general besides the epic war scenes which we'll get into do you think this kind of love triangle is a bit cliche or like cookie cutter yeah I, I i absolutely think so and i think it's actually reinforced because sylvia who like jack and david are both vying for she doesn't appear <laughs> after they leave like they go off to war they say goodbye to her she's gone and she's just gone and you would think she's just never in the film yeah again. you would think there would be a scene where jack comes back after david's dead and he's like says i'm sorry to sylvia sorry. yeah and uh but I guess also he like that he finds out that she didn't actually love him based off of uh, a thing that she found uh, that he found uh, of and uh, David's like the locket. yeah the locket uh, I cannot remember that name um, but yeah I mean it's it's very typical it's very Hollywood cookie cutter type of uh, love triangle stuff but there there is one cool shot though at the beginning that like is kind of a part of this and I th I think it's actually my favorite shot of the whole film and mm -hmm. it's of uh so david and sylvia are sitting like this like this like swing set it's like hanging from a tree and it's kind of like mm -hmm. i want to the camera's attached yeah to it. it's like it's almost like a hammock that they're laying on the camera's on it so instead of so the camera is moving with the swing and it's like going up and down and so the background is constantly changing but the foreground is the same and they're both David and Sylvia are kind of lovingly looking at each other. And I think Sylvia's playing a guitar. I think she's playing an instrument uh, from what yeah, I remember. Or something, and yeah. as they keep going uh, back up, you see the background and you see Jack coming forward closer and closer with uh, his car, the, the, the OG sh shooting star <laughs> uh, in the film. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was like a really cool shot because there's a lot of emotion um, there's a lot, you know, there's movement, there's things appearing, getting closer and closer. So I thought it was like a very well-crafted shot, um, you know, and I guess when he, like, I'm not a cinematographer, but even when I try to think of like, 
how I would do something or how I would shoot something like movement is such like a, a that is a a master uh like a, a master thing that you have to master that like understanding movement and the camera so the fact that that was included I thought was like really really cool and well done yeah I think it's an awesome introduction shot to like those two characters and sets the scene of these kind of like two lovebirds um it's really cool and I while looking at the film now you know almost a hundred years later it feels so cliche but it feels like this film not only defined war cliches and war films but also just kind of set the standard for what like love triangle it like is and really what love triangle can be on film and then from there you know other films have done it better and they you know don't have that sexist element to yeah. it and the women are actually characters and they they say and do more than just be there looking for a dude yeah it the film it definitely seems very like what we what you would see today and just any kind of love triangle um and i don't i wouldn't i don't think this is the first movie to do that i'm sure there are i'm sure there's some i'm sure i'm sure like shakespeare there's definitely some love triangle that uh, that we're both forgetting (laughs) that is huge but um but yeah but so that's something unique particularly in film yeah but particularly in film and uh, the backdrop of war it's the uh, wings is very hollywood typical and and i think that's something to remember for the the win that it got for outstanding picture it it's a hollywood movie and and that's something that, that needs to be remembered about wings so like a lot of these cliches that we're kind of talking about and things that seem very basic are just a standard sometimes what i found the most exciting was by far the action scenes oh, oh the, yeah the, that, that's the a scenes given. of the the fighters in the cockpit it it not only is it so mind-blowing a hundred years later but the to imagine that this was done that long ago with huge 35 millimeter film rolls on top of these cameras like strapped down as the real actors were learning how to fly learning how to navigate these ships all while actually shooting these huge wide shots of like all these these planes flying and composing these like beautiful symmetrical lines in midair i like i was blown away by the action scenes in this movie yeah i, I was too uh because i remember my first time watching it uh you know i didn't know what the movie was about and so all of a sudden when they have these like humongous aerial shots and i'm like how the hell did they do that like yeah you know, <laughs> and if you've ever seen like some of these like cinema cameras they had back then they're they're huge they are absolutely huge and the fact yeah. that they were able to rig it and and get the shots and the shots are really well done with like probably no like beside like they had the viewfinder in the camera and like that's it so the fact they got that it was pretty incredible and, and again like, it's some of my favorite stuff too and uh um it, it's pretty significant like what they were able to accomplish which again goes into the the effects aspect and again like the huge production hollywood aspect of the film and why it's why it won yeah, definitely. It's it's so big in scope when it comes to like the war scenes. And I was watching this film with my roommates and um, my one roommate where we were watching this introduction where they're building up the army. They're showing these two men train and they get to a scene where like all the men are on gunners and they're looking down a range. And uh, in at the end of the range, their targets are these planes that are on strings. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as we saw that, my roommate goes, oh he, he thought that the entire film and the war scenes were going to be like little planes <laughs> on strings flying around because he didn't understand like and then as soon as we got to the actual war scenes he's like wow like this is crazy I, this is not what i expected from 1927 this is wild. yeah i 
I, I thought I kind of had that feeling too. I was like, oh, how are they going to do that? And even when watching the movie, I was like, that's probably how they did it. They used like little miniatures, but then, <laughs> yeah, mini plane. But yeah. then researching it, you're like, oh, no, they actually did put cameras on these planes and essentially set a standard almost for any aerial shot uh, for any film to come out. Like, it, this is the first. And, and they look exactly like what you would imagine today. Yeah, and it immediately strikes me uh, into modern films like most recently like Dunkirk and the Mission Impossible franchise like the way that uh, real actors doing real stunts is defined as exciting and knowing that aspect and seeing it live on film will always be a LED background or a green screen or a blue set like all of it's just more engaging and it feels grounded and real and I it's you can't watch Dunkirk or these Mission Impossible films without just seeing wings inspired you know these directors so much. Yeah. No, I, I I agree, and uh, again, like there, there's a reason why this movie won, and I, and I think this has to do with it mostly is the, just, it, the action was just like like this is it, like that's the biggest spectacle they had, and um, I think even doing some research, we discovered that for uh in theaters that they would actually have a third projector and open it up basically make it wide a widescreen aspect ratio, uh, really theaters right. Exactly. Yeah. So the film would open up specifically um, from about like 15 feet uh, to 20 feet when you're seeing it in theaters, only when we would get into the cockpit kind of sense. So knowing that in mind, too, that takes me back to Nolan. Nolan, Nolan's obsession with uh, IMAX films and having a bigger picture. Um, He filmed all of Dunkirk on IMAX, like knowing all these aspects of wings. I look look at the film Dunkirk and I'm like, this is like almost a remake of wings, essentially. And, you know, it takes place at a different time of history. And it's about um, Dunkirk and and World War Two in general. Or is that World War uh, One? No, that that one's World War Two. World War Two. It's just so reminiscent. It's almost like he was so inspired by wings that he wanted to make the iconic British war film of wings. Yeah. Very, very, very cool. Yeah, no, I, I loved it, and um, you know, and Wings, it, it, for a silent movie, it runs two and a half hours. But if you're only just watching the action sequences and the war sequences, like it, it's really like worth it just to see that. It goes, it goes quick, honestly. Yeah. Even at two and a half hours, like there's there are some slow down points. Like the pair scene, while cool, is a little slow. The setup for the characters is a little bit slow and, and clunky to get through. But once you get to those, yeah, those climactic acting scenes and it's building up with that amazing score by J.S. Zepnik is what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. And and supposedly, you know, it's it's something that we need to mention is that obviously we'll never be able to experience the film in 1927 when they would take it around and bring it to new cities and set up uh, the sound system, one of the first films to actually set up uh, their own sound system for each uh, individual showing of this the screening. You know, what we got is a $700,000 restoration from Paramount Pictures during their 100th anniversary. So we are watching a film that's been restored um, directly from the composer's uh, notes via the soundtrack, as well as adding in um, slightly more special effects when it comes to like the audio from the shooting and the, the air fights as well as when the film when the planes are shot down i thought it was so cool that they kind of like explode into fire as they're spinning and and crashing down yeah and, and they even added some color to the to the flames as the planes were coming down and that was part of the wasn't that part of the restoration it was part of the restoration but it was following the guidelines of what it was like to watch this film yeah. 
so the the film was technically lost at a point in time and i think uh, in the 50s they found a particular print uh, and that print was like kind of like the the framework of what it uh, what it was. But then from there, they kind of took examples and uh, recordings of what this film was back in the day to kind of recreate what it was seeing it there live in a theater. Yeah, and, and and putting the the music and and the the special effects sounds, which again like is interesting because of how the jazz singer wasn't like talkies weren't part of the ceremony. But anyways, uh, so it's interesting how important the sound was and how the part of the restoration was to include that into it. And then it also you you think well, well am I actually watching the actual wings? Um, and I didn't again like I didn't necessarily know like how much was of it was restored and kind of pieced together um, until after watching it. And I, so I definitely want to ask like does that impact what you saw? Does that impact essentially this podcast? Because are we just watching restorations? Like we're never going to see the real thing if like things happen to it. And so does that like really impact to our whole idea of this and just, you know, our, the thesis in general? Well, in a way, yes, certainly. I mean, we'll never be able to like be there in person experiencing that original show. And that's what they based these awards off of. So in a way, yeah, it will always be, but you know, this is what we have. This is the fragility of just film as a physical medium. And it just, being not only flammable but decays over time like we have so many lost films throughout the years that we are lucky that we have this restoration and they seem so intent on restoring it to the original um to the original film that wellman envisioned and i think that it's as close as we could possibly ever get you know there may be adjustments to make it better that wouldn't have seen in 1927 but this is what we got. And I think this is the way we have to compare the films to each other. You know, I think most of these early films are going to be changed and not be exactly what they were when people saw them, but it's what we have in, in our time to view these films. Yeah. I, I, I'm like sort of in between. I, I'm mostly okay that I I was watching a restoration of it because I can, because just acknowledging the fact like, yeah, I, I wasn't there to see the original, and you weren't going to get that original experience. And it is disappointing to kind of to, to recognize that, that this has been altered uh, in a way, like almost like with, with what George Lucas did with Star Wars, a totally different discussion about that. But for, for me, it, it's still the movie. Like as long as the none of the story is changed, and I don't think any of the story got changed in this restoration, I'm mostly okay with it. You know. Yeah, definitely. I don't think there's any major huge changes or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and this kind of goes more into when we get into Sunrise is like, if it were an artistic decision is so much more significant than just a, well, we put the music that would have originally accompanied it anyways. So, so from like understanding and doing the research we have on the restoration, it doesn't seem like any of the artistic integrity, integrity was taken out of it, although some would say it was just because of it's a silent film, but I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I don't think any art, no. in, artistic integration was taken away, but you know, it at definitely all. does sit in the back of your head. Like, well, this wasn't the original thing. Yeah, definitely not at all. So we keep talking about the scale and how epic this film really is. Yeah. Uh, I think it really shows in the numbers. So looking at the budget for the film, uh, supposedly the budget was only $2 million. Only $2 million. Uh, but at only $2 million, yes. Only $2 million at the time 
Well, the budget was only $2 million, but they were assisted with $16 million from the U.S. government and the United States military, but, uh, which takes the total budget to $18 million but what, was if you were that, to include that, that amount. Was that $16 million actually spent, or was it just like, well, we have $16 million worth of planes and troops? That's, that's what it yeah. was. I mean, $16 million it would be all considered in your production in your budget right like whether you're just considering them as props that's still accounted to your budget so if you were to take that amount which is 18 million dollars and equate it to 2020 terms that's 266 million dollars so you kind of get like a better understanding of of how big and how just massive this film is just when you see these like final climactic scene there's 3,500 soldiers and dozens of planes flying and it's it's unreal I like it totally blew me away still. I've still not seen war films. You know, I've seen big war films that are are close to this, but this still just blew me yeah, away. I, I think uh, it definitely does blow me away. I think though it it does get better and uh there's uh, one movie in the next few years that does win best picture that you'll watch and you'll be like, "Wow, that was an even better <laughs> war sequence." But yeah, for the time this was extremely significant and especially for that budget um a movie that today like it's made for 250 million what what the event avengers endgame was made for that i think i -hmm. think uh the the hobbit trilogy was made for almost around the same um but i mean again it's it's completely different uh time so but the the numbers are pretty staggering uh especially when we say like two million dollars for his budget just to make this movie like two million today would for an indie film like i don't even know if that's even enough at times <laughs> no it probably wouldn't be. um but it, it's just a, we keep on saying it yeah it's just a reflection of the times and just how things are different so before before we like i guess give off our um our exact feelings on wings we have to talk about sunrise right yeah definitely Sunrise, an allegory tale about a man fighting the good and evil within him. Both sides are made flesh. One a sophisticated woman he is attracted to, and the other his wife. A vacationing woman from the city lingers in a lakeside town for weeks. After dark, she goes to a farmhouse where a man and the wife live with their child. She whistles from the fence outside. The man is torn, but finally departs, leaving his wife with the memories of better times when they were deeply in love. The man and woman meet in the moonlight and kiss passionately. She wants him to sell his farm, which has not done well recently, to join her in the city. When she suggests that he solve the problem of his wife by drowning her, he throttles her violently, but even that dissolves into a passionate embrace. The woman gathers bundles of reeds so that when the boat is overturned, the man can stay afloat. The wife suspects nothing when her husband suggests going on an outing. When they set off across the lake, she soon grows suspicious. He prepares to throw her overboard, but when she pleads for mercy, he realizes he cannot do it. He rows frantically for shore, and when the boat reaches land, the wife flees. She boards a trolley, and he follows, begging her not to be afraid of him. The trolley brings them to the city. Her fear and disappointment are overwhelming. He piles her with flowers and cakes 
until she finally stops crying and accepts the gifts. Emerging back on the street, they are touched to see a bride entering a church, and they follow her inside to watch the wedding. The man breaks down and asks her to forgive him. After a tearful reconciliation, they continue their adventure in the city, having their pho photograph taken together and visiting a fun fair. As darkness falls, they board the trolley for home. Soon they are drifting back across the lake under the moonlight. A sudden storm causes their boat to begin sinking. The man remembers the two bundles of reeds he placed in the boat earlier and ties the bundles around the wife. The boat capsizes and the man awakes on a rocky shore. He gathers the townspeople to search the lake, but all they find is broken bundles of reeds floating in the water. Convinced the wife has drowned, the grief-stricken man stumbles home. The wife from the city goes to his house, assuming their plan has succeeded. The man begins to choke her. Then the maid calls out to him that his wife is still alive. So he releases the woman and runs to the wife who survived by clinging to one of the last bundles of reeds. The man kneels by his wife's bed as she slowly opens her eyes. The man and the wife kiss while the woman from the city carriage rolls down the hill towards the lake. The film dissolves to the sunrise. Sunrise was directed by F.W. Murnau. Writing credits to Carl Mayer, Herman Sutterman for the original theme, Catherine Hilkler for titles, and H.H. Caldwell for titles. Produced by William Fox. Music by R.H. Bassett, Carly Eleanor, Erno Rappi, Hugo Resfield, and Willie Shermit Gentier. Cinematography by Charles Roshner and Carl Struess. And film editing by Harold D. Schuster. The man is played by George O'Brien. The wife is played by Janet Gaynor. And the woman from the city is played by Margaret Livingston. Ben, do you have a favorite part or favorite scene from Sunrise? Yeah, I think my favorite part or scene from the film is actually the wedding scene. Um, I think this is kind of, if we're looking at the film as a roller coaster, this is the tippy top. This is where mm -hmm. I think it, it all gets better for the, the man and his wife. So we're ramping up, and even though he has his like, realization and change within the boat <laughs> before he tries to kill her, um, it still keeps ramping up because she's scared of him and he's chasing after her. But then he like truly realizes he almost has this like God like uh, realization. Like the it almost seems like the light just beams right on him in the church, where he's like, I you know he loves her. He realizes how much he loves his wife. Um, so for me, like that was probably the most emotional and the most character changing part of it. Because then right after that, it, the film changes into this like this like this like adventure this more this day this like day adventure for the man and his wife and they are almost like kids again and that out goes back to one of my favorite lines from the film which is said by the maid uh at the beginning she goes they used to be like children carefree always happy and always happy and laughing and that's what happens after he begs her for forgiveness and at the wedding uh inside the church is they become happy and they laugh and it just they become their old selves again yeah, there's truly an, an emotional core to this film that, that struck me a lot more than Wings. And uh, that's not to say that they weren't aiming for any kind of particular theme or emotion in Wings. That Sunrise just seems to be taking these like allegory of really just a, a human relationship um, and just kind of breaking it down and, and showing the weaknesses that each human has 
when in a relationship, you know, they have faults and sometimes those faults are like shown brightly and, you know, they show it so brightly that he's willing to murder his wife, which is insane. But I think when you're looking at this particular time, it's, you have to be so exaggerated, especially coming from a director who's so just dug in and experienced in German expressionism that this was his first American film and his first, first Hollywood film that it, it shows throughout, you know, he's drawing up these emotions through these direct performances. And I, I was just, I was more engaged in this film, uh, emotionally than wings. That's for sure. Yeah, I I was too. And, uh, and kind of comparing this love triangle to wings, this love triangle is way more depth than wings. It has so much more drama in it. There's, it's not the same cookie cutter Hollywood love triangle. This is he, the man is being told to kill his wife. It's, it's so different. (laughs) It's, it's literally so different. I think that's what makes this film appealing is that it takes chances. It takes risks. You know, the Murnau, like, he goes into this coming from this background of German expressionism and, and that side of the film industry and that film technique. And he takes risks in this movie. And I think it pays off really well. And, you know, looking at like the technical aspects of this film, this film won for not just the unique and artistic picture, it won for Janet Gaynor's performance as the wife and it won for cinematography. Wings didn't win for cinematography. It wasn't even nominated. And I think that's a, an interesting comparison between the two because we just spent all this time talking about wings and how crazy the production was of it and all these aerial shots and the war sequences. But yet the cinematography for sunrise, in my opinion, is better. It's act, it's well-crafted. Yeah. It's well-crafted and it, yeah. and it uses the the medium of filmmaking to, to do a lot more rather than just being like, well, here are planes in the sky. Like we're able to like create this like cool effect. Like it, it, it does more. And that's not taking away from wings. It's just, a, a different thing and you know, we're, we're going to get into that but it is one of the big differences between these movies and it's significant that it was recognized for its cinematography yeah i think both films have a sort of spectacle that is very different spectacle and i think that german expressionism really shines through not only their performance but these like grandiose sets you know and when we talk about wings we were talking about you know the nightclub scene as they kind of like fly as if like a god flies over showing this party but we see so much of that throughout um sunrise as well you know these big beautiful sets when they go to uh, the fair or circus oh that that you see these like yeah i love that scene of the entire uh circus and fair as like we see these sets move in the background and these roller coasters are like in the environment with the characters in the foreground they're using these weird kind of like images to represent all these different uh set pieces i found it so engaging and so interesting yeah absolutely and and i think that it kind of leads us into discussion of uh, the outstanding picture versus unique and artistic picture um because I, again, like both of these films have their merits, but then as we start to look at, well, which one's the best picture? I, I don't know. I, I like them both, but I think I have to say Sunrise is the better movie. Yeah, I really, it really depends on as a viewer what you're interested in, I think, in a film, like what you're looking for in a film. Are you looking to be entertained or are you looking to to question yourself, question your morals, question characters. And 
and just overall think more about like a film after you watch it. You know, when I finished Wings, I thought about, wow, that was cool. Like that was cool. All those action set pieces. I did not once think, wow, Jack was cool. He's a great, interesting, in-depth character. Yeah, David was an uh, in-depth, interesting character. I, I didn't either. And and I think what makes Sunrise appealing, and, and, and I say this a lot about some of my favorite movies, is they're almost about the fringe aspects of society. Like, no, like this is about a man who's having an affair and he, and he tries to kill his wife like that. That's not normal. And, and, and I think that's what, yeah, what, what makes sunrise so appealing is that bold is it, all hell. It, too. Exactly. It, it, it took risks and it's not the risks of special effects. It's the risk of a story. It's the risk that it, it this is going to be different. It's going to break your expectation of love. It's going to break your expectation of, of your duty to your partner and it's going to break the expectation of whether you agree or disagree about them coming back together. Yeah, definitely. To me, it, it just led to so many more questions. You know, usually when I have questions after a film, it could be one or two things. You know, either I have questions because I was so engaged by it. I want to know more about the world. And that could be a good thing. But the other way could be that I have so many questions because the that film did not give me enough of that world, did not give me enough of those characters to, like, understand what it was trying to go for. But it was the... You know, it was the prior for me here. I like had so many questions whether the woman in the city even existed. Like to me, it was like personally when I viewed this film, I didn't really see her as an actual character. Like she was like an almost temptation, like an internal temptation that this man had to leave his wife. And I think it's something that every person experiences in a relationship, whether their partner is right for them, whether their partner has everything that they think they need in a significant other. And I found that so engaging on just a, an emotional standpoint. Do you think that the woman in the city is an actual real existing person? I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think she does exist. Um, and it is, but there, there are a lot of signs to maybe she doesn't, you know, she, the only person she, there are three people she interacts with and that's the man. And then that's, and the people that she's living with, I don't know if they're her parents or relatives, um, uh-huh. but she only interacts with very few people and she's not really seen by anyone else. No. So yeah, maybe she doesn't exist. Maybe she is a form of temptation. Um, and I think that's, what's so great about films in general is there are a lot of interpretations. So I could totally buy that, that she's just a figment of the man's imagination. Um, and I can also buy that she's an actual character is an actual person. Um, yeah, it could go either way. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, you know. it can. And, um, so yeah, so it adds like that layer of, uh, of, of the story. It, it just adds so much more where a game of wings, it's very, it's just plateau with its story. It's very basic. Whereas with sunrise, it, it goes up and down. There are so, there's so much more to it. Yeah, definitely. I, I just, it, it just draws more out of the viewer and asks more from the viewer in general, which personally I find that way more engaging in, in films in general. Yeah. Um, I want to reference a little bit more about the title of sunrise and why you might think it's called sunrise. But before I do, I want to read uh, the first title card in this film. The song of the man and his wife is of no place in every place. You might hear it anywhere at any time, whatever the sun rises and sets, in the city's turmoil or under the open sky on the farm, life is much the same, sometimes bitter, sometimes sweet. And I'm curious, Ben, what you think 
that first title card means and why why it's used as the initial kind of signifier for sunrise as a as a piece of art yeah th- th- this was one of my uh, favorite lines of the of the whole film and and i think that it goes beyond just love and how love is in different places and shown in different ways i think it has to do with just humans in, in the and the human connection and just the, the human experience it's it's going to be completely different and unique wherever the sun rises wherever the sun sets it's bitter it's sweet um it takes place in the city or it takes place in complete open sky like life is just so unique to everyone else's experience but there's still there's still some similarities between them between everyone else's relationships and i think that's what sunrise snapshots is like this is a snapshot of one relationship under the sun one day yeah one one day it, literally one day yeah, yeah. It, it's just one thing and I, and I think that's what the overall that opening title is it's everything happens under the sun this is what it but it happens in its own ways and um again that's so it's emotionally profound way more than just what especially what wings does which wings its biggest emotion the profoundness of it is just war is bad spectacle and yeah that's a that's about a, the theme that we get from the film yeah you know so i it, always have a person by your side and and war is a is a dangerous dangerous thing exactly so uh yeah so so getting into now how we compare these two i mean so we, we have wings which is very from a, a the technical aspect of it is, is that it's huge its engineering effects are incredible but with Sunrise, it has all these artistic effects. And one of the shots that I'm going to reference is at the beginning, the man is looking at his wife in the house. And this is before, this is when he's, this is like, he's going to kill her. And it's when he's planning is he's feeling this, it's like this ghosting of, of the woman from the city kind of caressing him and like holding his head and rubbing mm-hmm. his shoulders. And I was like, I was like, how the hell did you pull that off? How the hell did you pull that off yeah. in with basic film editing? I mean, even today in, in digital editing, that, that's not an easy thing to just put together. That, no. that takes a lot of it effort. It looks better than a lot of uh, CGI that you see of uh, yeah. kind of ghosts doing that. Yeah, there's so many moments in this film where I'm like, damn, that is so cool. Like, how the hell do they even do that? Like, being in film school, I'm like, struggle to even sort of compose shots and let alone, you know, have all these insane almost pre green screen well definitely pre green screen like effects the way they take these sets and they like layer them on top of each other and i'm assuming the way they kind of like created that ghost effect is simply laying these two scenes together on top of each other and the way they kind of like match up perfectly as as this ghostly figure and i think that comes back again to whether that woman in the city really exists or not whether it's like all in the man's head is this something that uh every person goes through in, in, in a relationship yeah uh, I, I definitely agree. You could point to that. Um, and even talk about green screen effects. There's one shot in particular that almost seems like it was green screen. So it was of uh, the man and the wife walking through the city street with like all these cars passing mm-hmm. by. Definitely. And I, cu- I couldn't tell. Was it blue screen or green screen? Or was it that the, the editors literally cut out a sequence of them walking and had to, and didn't mm-hmm. frame by frame, which immense that's an immense thing to to take on and and pull off and it's again it's really well done 
Yeah, so well done. I think it's similar into the wings where we see the fire on the planes and and uh, some of the the special effects used in there. It's like layering individual frames on top of each other and then slowly frame by frame kind of moving those, almost creating animation within a live action format. Just like the bubbles. Just like the bubbles. It, it is. So you know, we got to love them bubbles. Yeah, so uh, so I love Sunrise. It sounds like you love Sunrise. Um, and it's not like Sunrise doesn't have its uh i'm gonna say it's negative aspects some of its cons because it's a little misogynistic the male character is just the man and the female lead is the wife she's not even the woman she's the wife (laughs) and then and then the woman from the city is a woman who is a homewrecker you know she's oh she's the woman from the city like it's uh, it it adds a stereotype of of these molds that women have to fit and so it's not like this movie gets any break from uh some you know some of these awful aspects of it like it still has that yeah that's definitely similar in wings the way they kind of like subject women as just kind of like lust objects um men are kind of blindly dumb in this film but i think the way it works in this film is much much stronger than wings because it's it's tied to the theme and it's tied to the drama of the situation. And when I watch the film, I, I really do think the woman in the city is, is just an internal fantasy from the guy. So from that point of view, it's like the man picturing it himself, uh, which yes, is misogynistic in its own right. But I think it, that aspect of the film plays into the theme. So it makes sense to me. What what I wish is we got a little more from the wife, you know, we get a little more of who she is a char- as a character because I feel like that's we get more time with the man to kind of set up that dynamic of uh of either he goes with the woman in the city or he goes with his wife. Um but yeah, the, the women are definitely underrepresented in in both films. Yeah. Uh, and that's definitely a similarity. Yeah, absolutely. So So those are kind of our general feelings, you know, about both films, but you know, we kind of now have to compare the two and discuss how does outstanding picture compare to artist, you know, unique and artistic picture, and then how they have now formed our views for what should be a best picture winner today. And uh, are they worthy of the titles? Yes, are they worthy of those titles? <laughs> Hitting it right on the head. So, just take a moment here and acknowledge what the Academy thinks is worthy. And uh, the reason for the Academy to promote and push these films uh, is very particular. So Louis B. Mayer's purpose in creating the award was to unite the five branches of the film industry, including actors, directors, producers, technicians, and writers. Mayer commented on the creation of the awards. I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill them to produce what I wanted. That's why the Academy Award was created. The Academy Award began as a way to promote the new film industry, then seeking to displace stage vaudeville as the predominant form of theatrical entertainment in the United States. So I think we get a clear, direct, pinpoint answer of why these awards were created. Obviously, that's changed over time. But what do you think of that, Ben? Uh, It's a little skeevy, (laughs) you know, and and there (laughs) are other aspects to also why the Academy was was made to kind of handle some uh some unions and to kind of put the big hollywood foot down on people who are kind of be like well this isn't right how we're doing something so it's a little fishy with like why 
the academy was made and like what they then deem worthy to win um but yeah but there there needs to be some competition with these filmmakers they need to have an incentive to be like well i i need to put more artistic integrity into it otherwise we're gonna just get like i could just make a film just using my phone and make a the same story as like sunrise but it's not going to have the same technical and artistic levels as it as as Morneau who put all so much into it and what came out of it and why it ultimately won and why it's silver beer today. Um, it's such a nuance. There's so many nuances to it. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Yes. It's so nuanced. And his quote, uh, Louis B. DeMayer's, uh, Louis B. Mayer's quote is just, it's so, it's so aggressive. It's so producer like, and it's something that obviously is adapted over time. And the Academy would never say anything like this ever again. Oh yeah. I would, would never, but it's, it's, it's hard to say what is worthy or not without having the context of every film. You know, it's, it's hard to say, well, this film is, is definitely the best picture winner because I, I haven't seen every film from 1927 to 1928. I, I don't really know if there's a better film out there. And, you know, that takes time as like a viewer and someone who just wants to be a cinephile or considers themselves a cinephile. It, it takes time to to understand that. And I think the worthy question is something that's always ongoing. Yeah. I, Do I think these films are spectacular and in, in their own right and in, in their own way? Certainly. Yes, yeah, so I completely agree. And to to put some numbers to to the facts, uh, I, am, I, ha- I have been keeping track of uh, critics ratings and my own personal rating. So just to, to throw some numbers out there. Uh, so Rotten Tomatoes, so this is for wings. The Rotten Tomatoes percentage is at 93%. So that means that 93% of reviews is a fresh rating. The average critic score on Rotten Tomatoes is a 7.53. The audience score percentage is a 78. So 78% of, of audiences who watch it uh, like it. And then their average rating score, which is out of five, is 3.88. And IMDb gives Wings a 7.5. Now, for Sunrise, the average, the percentage that critics loved it or gave it a fresh rating is a 98%. And the average rating is an 8.99 out of 10. The audience score is a 92%. And it has an audience average rating score of 4.43. Um, and these are also based off of different numbers of ratings. Uh, like with Wings, the... Um, Audiences who gave a review is thirty five hundred, and then for Sunrise is ninety six hundred, um, and IMDb for Sunrise is an eight point one. My personal rating for Wings, um, and I know me and you had, had a discussion, uh, before, yeah, when we were talking about the creation of the podcast about rating it, um, and my scale is out of a hundred, and I give Wings an eighty, and I would give Sunrise a ninety. Yeah. A 90 very much a uh like a grade point scale right yeah and it, for me it it became very hard to uh really dial down to that specific of a rating the best i could try to do is even it out on a like a 10 point scale so i'll still uh, measure from to 100 but it'll be in 10 10 decimals essentially yeah. so i would give both wings and sunrise an 80 flat i believe okay i'm gonna mark that in my I spreadsheet think- <laughs> In a way, it's just they both offer so much in different ways. 
that I completely understand why you would put Sunrise over as we discussed, like the emotional significance and how much the story affected. And I totally agree with all those points. I totally agree that Sunrise has has more uh, prominence when it comes to the storytelling. But on the other hand, Wings is just so so significant when it comes to the, the way action is filmed, the way they set up this like love triangle, even though it's trite and uh, misogynistic, it's still it's doing so much. It's doing so much with a two and a half hour film that still kind of breezed by for me, which I thought was impressive. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that's and the fact that our baselines are at an 80, I think shows like what what a best picture winner should be and what and what does make it worthy because you need to have a lot there need you need to have a lot going for you but i think more importantly it needs to at the end of the day when you are thinking about well how would i grade this how would i rate it it needs to be more than above average it needs to be something really good to make you feel like that it's worthy and even though they are two totally different categories and even though wings is technically the first best picture winner they're both worthy in, in my view of, of winning those awards. And I think if sunrise, if you want to put it against any other year, I think it would, could still win. Uh, and that, yeah, definitely. And so when we're talking about the thesis of this podcast, when we're talking about what is worthy uh, and what's Oscar worthy, both of these are Oscar worthy, both of these movies meet the criteria for me to say uh, officially on this platform, wings is worthy and sunrise is worthy of the best picture awards. Certainly. I think when I look at the two, it's funny because before we even going into this, it, Sunrise is a film that's talked about a lot more, at least personally in film school and in the film, uh, fr- like friends and family that are love film. Like I hear way more conversation about Sunrise than I do Wings, which is funny because the best picture winner is considered Wings, not Sunrise. Yeah, I, Wings is definitely referenced more as the silent film masterpiece. Um, and again, like, my uh, my knowledge of silent films is not extensive, but I, it was really good. And there are a lot, and there are a lot of movies, especially best picture winners, to follow that do that don't live up to the standard that Sunrise set. And yeah, and I, I think that's important to recognize. I think it's important to say, like you know, we're not critics. Our our reviews are just purely based on how we feel at the specific moment. If I were to go back and watch five other films from 1927 to 28, maybe my perspective on wings is, is like lessened. Maybe I see a film that's came out before wings. And I understand that like, Oh wow. They borrowed a lot of techniques even from 1922 um, or same with sunrise. Like these change and maybe my reviews will change. Maybe I might think one is better than the other in the future. You know, I think by the time we get to the very end of all of these Academy Awards or even 10 years, we could look back and really discuss if our views have changed on the films. Yeah. And, uh, and, and coming from, you know, the background of having seen, you know, all these, especially these early ones, I, I have seen them all. Um, this one, these two stand out. And I think it does set a precedent, especially for the following few years, because it's, they're, they're just different films. It's, it's just different styles, but these two definitely set a standard of like, this is what it means to be a best picture winner. This is, you know, these stand out and they're important. They do a lot to promote filmmaking. They do a lot for the industry and they show what can be done uh, in the, in the format of, of film. I concur. Ben, do you have any uh, final thoughts or wrap ups of uh, sunrise and wings? Uh, 
my only last comment I want to make is if you're listening to this podcast, you should go watch these movies. Um, and maybe you're listening to this podcast to not have to watch these, but at least watch one of them. It doesn't matter which one because they're both really good. And I think that you, that you as the audience would enjoy them both. And you're going to learn something new uh, while watching them. Definitely. I think you can follow along this podcast, like we said, as almost a, a film school to learn from all these films, to understand the, the context and period of the, of the time and why that film uh, was worthy for the Academy Award or why at least the Academy thought so. And I think as we progress, we learn more just about not only filmmaking, more about the film industry. Uh, we learn more about ourselves and what we enjoy in, in the art form in, in general. Absolutely. Thank me and John have taken the time to talk about both Wings and Sunrise has made a really good basis of moving forward with this podcast. So keep listening uh, wherever you get your podcasts, no matter how you listen to it, where you're listening to it, when uh, keep checking us out because we have a really interesting one next week. I'm John. I'm Ben. And, and this, this is Worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every best picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to Worthy Submissions at gmail.com. That's Worthy Submissions at gmail.com.